Yeah, let's put our hands together and praise the Lord. Man, that was, a, that was incredible worship. And let's, let's just give it up for Cassidy Hill and her worship team. That was amazing. So we have Thanksgiving behind us, and now we are entering into Christmas. You know, I have this, like, subconscious rule that I, I never ask uh, a lady when she's due if I don't know for absolute certain that she's pregnant. It's just a rule, you know, just kind of like a no-brainer, common-sense rule. Well, there was this one time, there was this lady, and, and I, I, I knew the rule, I thought of the rule, but she looked so pregnant that I asked her, so when are you due? And she said, I'm not pregnant, Shane. And because she looked so pregnant, I thought she was just trying to make me feel awkward. So I was like, no, for, for, for real, when, when are you due? <laughs> She's like, for real, I'm not pregnant. So we just had Thanksgiving, and I won't ask anybody when you're due or anything of that nature, uh, but I did a lot of eating, and it was great. I did a lot of resting, and I'm ready to move forward. Now we have Christmas to look forward to. I wonder, how many of you guys um, enjoy Christmas movies? Just shout out some of your favorite Christmas movies. Home Alone. Home, home alone. It's Wonderful Life. What, what else did you guys say? Nobody mentioned Christmas Vacation. I, I, I like that one. Um, it's Wonderful Life is definitely my, my top favorite. I, I, in fact, I have the VHS. Not that I have a v, VCR, but I have the VHS, and uh, I, I watch that every year. Um, but I, th- I think probably the most uh, enduring Christmas story of all time would be Charles Dick- Dickens' um, A Christmas Carol uh, about Ebenezer Scrooge. And if you recall, Ebenezer Scrooge was visited by a ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. Um, and I think that, that that resonates so much with us and it strikes such a chord with us because uh, don't we so often battle our own ghosts of the past and ghosts of the present and ghosts of the future? Our ghosts of the past haunt us with guilt and regret and fear that our decisions from the past will catch up and deteriorate our present. And the ghosts of the present haunt us with, with pressure and stress and anxieties and fear and disappointments and discouragements and the ghosts of the future haunt us with fear of what uncertainties loom in the horizon. But I just want to say praise God unto Jesus Christ that we have a Savior who delivers us from the past, present, and future. In fact, Jesus declared himself. He said, I am the God who is and who was and who is to come. And I believe that statement is made some five times about Jesus Christ, all in the book of Revelation. Jesus is he who is, that's the present. He was, that's the past. And he is to come. He lives and he breathes and he, and he intercedes and he delivers from our past, from our present, and from our future. And as we are in a series, we're in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's take a look at our text. We are going to look at the three tenses of salvation, the three tenses of our Savior. Our God, Jesus Christ, delivers us from the past, the present, and the future. Our God saves us from the past, the present, and the future. No matter what ghosts lurk in our past, our present, or our future, we have a God. His name is Jesus Christ, and He's greater than anything in our past, present, or future. Our salvation is so thorough that it comes in three tenses. 
He saves us. Jesus Christ saves us from the past, the present, and the future. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. This has been a great series for our church, Hebrews. And we've all grown so much in our, our, our knowledge and our love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've learned to rest in that salvation. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 14. There's a Bible in front of you. Uh, just go to Revelation, flip a few books to the left. You'll find your, yourself in Hebrews. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Uh, just flip a few books to the left. You'll find yourself in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he, talking about Jesus Christ, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect. He has made perfect. You see the past tense? For by one sacrifice, he has, he has it's done. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's the present. And then we, we finish up Hebrews chapter 10 uh, talking about our God who, who delivers us from the future. And, and our salvation is eternal in that we live for the rewards in heaven, not for the pleasures of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us fall in love with this, with this Savior even more deeply. As we see the, the full depth and breadth and expanse of the salvation that you've given to us. In all of its tenses, past, present, and future. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So there's a story about a missionary. And this missionary was, um, he was in London and <clears throat> it was a hundred years ago. And he was establishing an orphanage and there was this kid and, and he said, oh, this kid, I mean, he's so, he's so filthy. He looks cold. He looks hungry. He's skin and bones. And this, or, this missionary wanted to bring this kid into his orphanage. And so he starts walking after the, 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 the orphan to introduce himself. And so the orphan doesn't know what this guy's all about. So he's afraid. And he starts walking away from the, from the missionary. And the missionary picks up his pace. And he's pursuing the orphan. And then finally the orphan, he turns around and he says, come on, you, you want to fight? Let's go. And the missionary said, son, I don't want to fight you. I want to adopt you. I want to clean you up. I, I want to give you a meal. I, I want to give you a home. I want to give you a family. I want to teach you how to live life. I, I want to teach you skills. I want to give you an inheritance. And in the same way, some of you came in here with this tension between you and God, and you think that God is out to get you. He's not out to get you. He's out to save you in all three tenses. He wants to save you from the sins in your past. He wants to save you from the, the pressures that you're experiencing. He wants to save you from the futures, from, from the fears in the, in, the, in the horizon. He wants to save you past, present, and future, the three tenses of our salvation. So we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. Who was? This Savior, Jesus Christ, He is. This Savior, Jesus Christ, He is to come. And so He saves us from our past. He saves us from our present. And He saves us from our future. The God who was, who is, and is to come saves us from our past, present, and future. When He saves us from our past... He saves us from the penalty of our sins. When he saves us from the present, he saves us from the power of sin. When he saves us from the future, he saves us from the very presence of sin. 
And this is when we leave these bodies, we no longer struggle with sin, and we're face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And if, if you grasp this theology, then you're going to have strength, and you're going to have peace, and you're going to have joy. You'll have peace in your present, and you'll have faith for your future. If you don't grasp this theology, then you will have pressure in your present, and you will have fear in your future. Our God, who was, who is, and is to come, saves us from our past, present, and future. When he saved us from our past, He saved us from the, what was it? The penalty of sin. This is called justification. When he saves us from our present, he saves us from the power of sin. How many of you struggle with the power of sin on a daily basis? Well, this is called sanctification. When the Holy Spirit that that he gave us at the moment of our salvation gives us a new heart, new desires, he, he recalibrates our thought process. He's, he, he sets our ambition for heavenly things, not earthly things. And he gives us an increasing capacity to overcome sin in our life. This is called sanctification. And one day, we will be saved, we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. And this is called glorification. So, our God who was, who is, and who is to come saves us from our past, present, and future. When he saved us from our past, this is called justification. He saved us from the very penalty of sin. When he saves us from our present, this is called sanctification. And this is when he saves us from the power of sin. And one day, when our souls leave these bodies and we're face to face with Jesus, he will save us from the very presence of sin And this is called glorification. And you can pick out about a hundred verses in each of these tenses of our salvation, past, present, and future tense. And for example, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been. Did you hear that? Have been. It's past tense. For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's many verses that that speak to our, our past tense, that we are saved. It's done. There's, we are forgiven. And there's many words that we could put here. We are saved. We are forgiven. We are purchased. We are bought. We are redeemed. Um, we are adopted We are chosen. It's all past tense. We are saved. And again, unless you get this, then you're always going to have pressure in your present. Pressure to be saved. Pressure to be made right with God. Pressure to be acceptable to Him. Pressure to, to be good enough to pray. And you will always consequently have fear for your future. But if you get this, if you get the past tense of your salvation, it is done. You are saved. You are purchased. You are redeemed. You are bought. You are forgiven. You are chosen. You are saved. The penalty for your sins has been paid for. It is a done deal. When you realize the past tense of your salvation, you are saved, then that gives you peace in your present. We don't have to strive to be made right with God because we are right with God. We don't have to strive to be saved because we are saved. And it gives us peace so that we can move forward in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Which is why all throughout the book of Hebrews, we are giving the instruction to pray with boldness. 
That's why we named the series Be Bold. We're not bold because we're, we, we've got it all together in and of ourselves and we're all this or all that. We are bold because of what Jesus has done for us. We're saved, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're purchased, we're bought. The penalty has been satisfied. We are saved, a done deal. Therefore, in our present, we are bold. We worship with boldness. We pray with boldness. The Bible says a just man falls seven times and seven times rises again. We rise again. No matter how many times we've stumbled, we rise again with boldness. Why? Because we are saved. Therefore, we can move forward in our relationship with Jesus Christ with peace and with boldness, and we have faith for the future. Four, let's go back to verse 14. For by one sacrifice... And we're going to look at this one sacrifice. He has made perfect, speaking to our past tense of our salvation. And this is really the emphasis of the entire book of Hebrews. Because they were developing a thought process that I've called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. It's not like just a little magic spell, words that they said. And so therefore they've done something to go to heaven. No, they transferred the confidence in their heart from themselves, good or bad, to what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross. They've placed their faith in the work of Christ on the cross and the empty tomb. He rose from the grave. So they are saved. And as a result of that salvation, they are made perfect. It's past tense. And that perfection, we read, lasts forever. For by one sacrifice, let's speak to this, for by one sacrifice, and this is the emphasis of the book of Hebrews, because although they were saved, they found themselves in a place in their present where they were constantly trying to be saved by things that they would do. They would would sacrifice the animals. And we don't, as Christians, sacrifice animals like they did in the Old Testament. Have you guys read in the Old Testament how they sacrifice animals? Do you guys know about that? We've talked a lot about that in Leviticus 16. Why in the world did they do that? I mean, the animals, they would, they would scream their th- as their throats would be slashed. The blood would pour. Their legs would kick. And the smell of blood would fill the air. Why did they do that? Did that remove one sin? Not one sin. The scriptures make it clear. Then why did they do that? Because it was a picture of Jesus Christ who was far more brutally slaughtered. The the beard was ripped out of his face. The spikes, the crown of thorns were placed in his head and with with the rod that was bashed in deeper. They took a whip, it was called a cat and nine tails, and they whipped him 39 times. Chips of bone, metal, and glass were at the end of these leather strips. So when they would whip them, they would... The bone, metal, and glass would embed under the flesh of Jesus, and they would pull it and would rip entire ribbons of flesh off. You could see muscle. You could see bones. We read about it in Isaiah 53, a messianic prophecy written 700 years prior that he was beaten so brutally, he looked like an animal, not a man. This was all before the cross. And then he carried this cross up a hill and, and they took the spikes and they nailed them into his hands and his feet and his body, it was shivering and it was convulsing to catch a breath. He would push up on his feet to catch a breath. 
But when he would push up on his feet, the, 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 the nerves would, would rub against the nails in his hands and his feet as he would hold himself up, and that would become so excruciating, he would let himself down again. And he would be suffocating, so he'd push himself up and pull himself up, and the nerves against the nails would be so excruciating on the nerves that would just send shockwaves of intense, fierce pain through his body, and he would relax again to suffocate. And he did this for us. And you would think that the crowd surrounding Jesus would be in awe, and they would be so reverent, and they would be worshiping because he was doing that for us, but instead they were spitting on him, and they were mocking him, and they were insulting him. Why did he go through that? Because he loves us. He was paying for our sins. And all the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament never removed. It never removed not one sin from not one person. But it was a picture of the slaughter of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who removed the sins of the world forever. And so we read by one sacrifice, one sacrifice... Because in the Old Testament, they would have to sacrifice these animals every year. It never removed sin. It never removed sin. It simply reminded them of their sin. Let me repeat that. The animal sacrifices, the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, it never removed sin. Not one from anybody. Moses, Elijah, Joshua, David, Samuel, Ezekiel, you name them. The biggest giant in the Old Testament. Never had one sin removed because of these animal sacrifices. They never had one sin removed because they upheld the Ten Commandments. Because not one person ever upheld any of the Ten Commandments. Not one. Not one. Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, no, nobody. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, including the giants of the Old Testament, Isaiah, everybody, especially us. And we read in Isaiah also, we read that man's best, on your best day, on my best day, our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. So these animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, and the Ten Commandments, the law, it never removed one sin. All it did was remind us of our sins. Did you hear that? It never removed one sin. It simply reminded us of our sin and pointed us to our Savior, this ultimate Savior who died once and for all. So they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but then something happened in their thought process, and they think that they had to add to what Jesus did on the cross. And so this is the essence of the entire book of Hebrews, and let's just pick up of the, in reading about the insufficiency of the animal sacrifices or the law to remove one sin. It simply reminded us of our sin and pointed us to our Savior. It's not that the law failed. It's not that the animal sacrifices failed. It's not that the law was not good. It's not that the animal sacrifices were not good. They just weren't designed by God to remove sin. They were designed by God to simply remind us of our sin and point us to the only one who could remove our sin. The law was good. Of course it was good. It came from God himself. It reflects the character of God. Of course the law is good. Thou shalt not steal or covet or commit adultery or murder or take the Lord God's name in vain or put any God before our God. Of course it's good. It's the heart of God. It wasn't designed to save. For example, if you look in the mirror, the first thing when you wake up, 
the mirror, it doesn't, it doesn't fix your hair or brush your teeth for you. It just reflects that you need to fix your hair and brush your teeth. And in the same way, the law is simply a mirror. It doesn't remove sin. It just reminds us that we're a sinner and points us to a Savior. For, exa- for example, how many of you guys, raise your hand, if you've ever been pulled over by a policeman and he told you, I am pulling you over because I just wanted to say, good job, because all your brake lights are functioning properly, your stickers are up to date, um, I just want to say that we're all proud of you. How many, how many of you have ever been pulled over by the law to simply be encouraged for doing something right? Never. The law is not designed to encourage us. The law is not designed to point out any aspect of our lives that we've done something right. The law is designed to condemn us, to condemn us. And we've all failed in every aspect of the law. We've all murdered. Jesus said, it's not simply external, it's inward. If you're even angry with your brother without cause, you've murdered. We've all committed adultery. It's internal, not external. Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you've even lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. In fact, we read that in the lobby, if, say, some of our leaders around here walk past someone who lived you know, has been living on the streets the last several months, and they walk right to a yuppie couple and say, hey, how's it going? Man, we'd we'd love for you to come to lunch with us afterward. In the book of James, we read that they have committed the sin of partiality or judgmentalism, and they've broken one aspect of the law, and the law stands or falls together. If you break one aspect of the law, you break the entire law. So at that point, you're not only a bigot, but you're an adulterer, a murderer, an idolater. So the law was never designed to save us. The Ten Commandments, the animal sacrifices were never designed to remove sin, simply to remind us of our sin in order to point us to the only one who can take away our sin, and that's Jesus Christ. So for our one sacrifice, that's Jesus Christ. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's our justification and our sanctification. For by one sacrifice, let's talk a moment about our justification. Sometimes the United States Congress awards the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, the the, the highest award that our country can give to somebody, um, to somebody who in war dove on a grenade and absorbed the shrapnel in order to save the lives of their friends. And that's an incredible example of what Jesus Christ did for us. Because there's a law in place. It's called the law of sin and death. If we sin, there's a consequence, and that's death. We die first spiritually, and then that's why we die emotionally, and then we die physically, and then we die forever, eternally. Because the soul will live on forever, saved or unsaved. The question is where. So the moment that we sin, we immediately die spiritually, emotionally, physically, and then eternally. That was a grenade that landed in the sea of sinful humanity, the law of sin and death. For the wages, the consequences of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. The Ten Commandments that we've been talking about, it can't can't cause somebody to, to be exempt from this law. 
The, the animal sacrifices never did remove sin. Again, it simply reminded us of our sin and this law that is our reality in order to point us to Jesus Christ. But then 2,000 years ago, God did a swan dive from heaven to earth in the womb of a young teen named Mary, and he lived among us for 33 years, and then he dove on that grenade, and he paid for our sins when he was slaughtered on our behalf on the cross. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, Jesus Christ, dying on that grenade called sin and death to save our lives is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For by one sacrifice, this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then we read, when we receive this, when we place our faith in Jesus, our salvation is past tense. It's done. I mentioned to you guys, a good friend of mine, she's moved out of state since. But every connect card, every guest card that came in every week, she received Christ every single Sunday. Do you know you only have to be saved once? See, salvation is an event. Now, it's like a bolt of lightning. Now, there there, there may be a process that leads up to a bolt of lightning, the, the, the weather, the temperature, the climate. There's a process that leads up to a bolt of lightning, but the bolt of lightning in and of itself is an event. And in the same way, there's a process that leads up to somebody trusting Christ as the Lord and Savior. Friends, influence, the conviction of the Holy Spirit moving in our lives. But when we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's an event. It's a flash of lightning. The Holy Spirit enters our heart. We are saved, past tense, saved, delivered, sealed, bought, purchased, redeemed, forgiven, cleansed, we're sealed, we're new. That's an event. Now, sanctification is a process. It's a process where Jesus, who now through the Holy Spirit lives in our heart, works his way into our character, into our heart, into our thoughts, into our prayers, into our compassion, into our boldness, into our desires. This is an ever-increasing process. And this process of sanctification lasts from the moment that we are saved all the way through this earthly life to the time that we finally die and we're face to face with heaven. And then we trade the process of sanctification in with the reality of glorification when we're face to face with Jesus Christ. For by one sacrifice, by one sacrifice, one, and this is so critical, for by one sacrifice Jesus perfected forever those who place their faith in him. For by one sacrifice, what sacrifice is that? When you went to confirmation class? No. For by one sacrifice, what sacrifice was that that perfected us in order to be his child and forgiven and redeemed and heaven bound? For by one sacrifice, was it when you were baptized? No, of course not. For by one sacrifice, when when, when you got up here to serve in the church and maybe vacuum and clean the bathrooms throughout the week? No, no, no. For by one sacrifice you are perfected. What sacrifice is that? By being a good husband or a good wife or a a faithful church member or tithing regularly? No, no, no. For by one sacrifice you are perfected. What sacrifice? There's only one sacrifice that perfects us, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. What could we ever possibly do to contribute to that one sacrifice? Nothing, ever. 
We never add to what Christ has done for us through his one sacrifice, through any good works. We simply trust in what Christ has done for us. This one sacrifice, he dove on the shrapnel, the law of sin and death, when he paid for our sins on the cross. And as a result of that, we are perfected. Perfected. What does this word perfected mean? It means two things, really. It's multifaceted, but the basics are two things. And typically, when talking about our salvation or our perfection, um, if you were were raised Protestant like me, then the gospel that you were very familiar with probably, probably sounded something like this. Well, you're a sinner. Jesus is a Savior. He paid for your sins on the cross. You trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and all of your sins are forgiven, and you are heaven bound. Gospel sounds something like that growing up, maybe. But that's the very short-sighted gospel. It's it's only half of the equation. You're a sinner, Christ is a savior, he paid for your sins on the cross, and the moment you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven and you are heaven bound. Here's the gospel. We are perfected. For by one sacrifice he perfected. We're a sinner. Jesus is a Savior. When we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, at that moment, our sins are forgiven, and, and we become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's critical. All of our sins are forgiven, and we are perfected. We become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin on the cross, the ultimate sacrifice, so that we might become the very righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. Jesus became our sin and he died, thus our sin died, thus the payment of our sin was satisfied. He who knew no sin became sin so that in Christ we become the very righteousness of God so that when we walk through this sanctification process we don't walk through it by striving to be perfected by striving to be good enough to go to heaven by striving to be good enough to pray with boldness to striving to be good enough to have reason to have joy or to have reason to have a clean conscience when we walk through our sanctification process which begins the moment we're saved and lasts until the moment we die in this earth We walk through the sanctification process completely forgiven and completely perfected. And doesn't that change things? Doesn't that change everything? It's um, really awesome. Cassidy is our our worship leader. She's done an incredible job. Her sister Chloe was up here with her and and her parents, Tim and Cindy Hell, are here as well. And I, I grew up with them. And Tim and I, we would go to uh, youth camp together. We were great buddies in middle school in Midland, Texas. He's a worship pastor at, um, at um, Waxahachie, Midlothian. Midlothian. Thank you. First Baptist Midlothian. But we, we grew up together in a, in, a, in a big church in Midland called Kelby Heights Baptist Church. And his dad, uh, Cassidy and Chloe's granddad, was my youth pastor um, growing up. And just an incredible man. And he used to sing this song on Sunday mornings. And it would give me goosebumps every time he sang it. His name, was, his name is Russ Hell. And I would go, I don't know how many times I've asked him. I, I probably asked him 20 times to sing this song. And he would pat me on the head and just smile. 
It was an incredible song, and it talked about how in Christ we are perfected. Not just forgiven, but perfected. The song, it was about an auctioneer. Do you remember your dad singing that song? And, and, it, and it went something like this. Well, I'm paraphrasing, but the, 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 there was an auction, and many items had been, had been bid on. And then the last item up for bid was this old violin. And it was, a, it was a crowded room, and the auctioneer began the song, or he began to bid. One, give me one dollar. Who'll make it two? Two dollars. Who'll make it three? Three dollars twice. That's a good price. Who's got a bid for me? Nobody budged. No, no, nobody wanted this old, worthless violin. But then from the back of the crowd came forward this gray-haired man, and he picked up the, the violin. He tightened up some strings. He picked up the bow, and he played out a melody, pure and sweet, sweet as the angels sing. And then the music stopped, and, an auction, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what is my bid on this old violin as he held it up with the bow? And then he called out, one, give me 1,000. Who'll make it two? 2,000. Who'll make it three? 3,000 twice. That, that, that's a good price. Who's got a bid for me? And the people cried out, what made the change? We, we don't understand. And the auctioneer stopped, and he said with a smile, it was the touch of the master's hand. The, 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 the man who played was a, was a master of the violin, and he gave incredible worth to, the, to that violin just by touching it. And in the same way, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our sins are forgiven, and we are clothed in the righteousness of God. That means we're not just as good as Mother Teresa. She was pretty good, right? And we're not just as good as Billy Graham. He's pretty good, right? And we're not just as good as Patrick, who's up here talking about the youth. And that's pretty good, right? We are as good as, listen to this, Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's blasphemy. No, that's, that's solid theology. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the moment we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, our salvation is past tense. We are forgiven, redeemed, bought, purchased, cleansed, new, forgiven, uh, sealed. And we are the righteousness of God. That is our position in Christ. Let's just take a look at what this looks like on a daily basis in Zechariah chapter 3. I'm just going to read this. It's about Joshua the high priest. And this is really what, uh, what, what unfolds, what plays out in our life on a daily basis. Verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus. And Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And you say, if I'm really forgiven, and if I'm really righteous, then how come my conscience accuse me, accuses me? How come I have so much regret? Because you have an enemy. His name is Satan. He whispers into your conscience night and day, constantly. And you have to choose if you're going to believe the whispers of Satan's accusing lies, or if you'll believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are saved. Past tense. It's done. And as a result, you are forgiven and righteous. Satan... And by the way, scriptures tell us in Revelation that Satan never stops accusing. Night and day, night and day, he accuses. That's what he does. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses you. Remember what you did. Who could love you? How could the church ever accept you? How could God listen to you? You're not a real Christian. How could a real Christian have ever done that? God could never love you again. God could never use you again. These are the lies of the accuser. And we have to choose to cast them down to believe the truths of the gospel. 
Satan is standing at the right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Which is what all of us Christians are, burning sticks snatched from the fire. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. This is the best of the best in the whole country. And his best of the best was only filthy clothes that gave Satan the right to accuse him. But God snatched him from the fire as he did us. In verse 4, And the angel said, to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Did you see that? He's not only forgiven, but he's also clothed with the very righteousness of God. Verse 5, then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord gave the charge, and he went on to charge him and give him a commission. And this is what plays out for us as well. We had filthy clothes, but we were snatched from the fire. And we were not only forgiven, but we were clothed in the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. For by one sacrifice, Jesus Christ, he is made perfect. Not just forgiven, but made perfect. And when we realize the past tense of our salvation, we have peace in the present as we walk through our sanctification. He has made perfect, and how long does this perfection last? Forever. In other words, the events of salvation is a one-time deal that lasts for the rest of our lives. Like my friend, we don't have to get saved over and over and over. We get saved and then with peace in our heart, we move forward in our relationship with Jesus Christ, knowing that we are forgiven in the very righteousness of God. And then we touch on the truth that throughout the sanctification process, we are being made holy. If we're forgiven and made perfect, how is it that we are being made holy? This is our sanctification. The event of our justification, when we are saved by Christ... Salvation is being saved by Jesus, but that leads us into the process of sanctification where we begin to look and grow and act and think and feel and talk more and more like Jesus. The event of salvation is being saved by Jesus. The event of justification is being saved by Jesus, but the process of sanctification is increasingly growing to look more and more and more like Jesus. And the Lord has given us many tools, an incredible skill set in our sanctification to have increasing power over sin, like repentance on a daily basis. Um, We confess our sins, and He's faithful and just to forgive us. There's repentance on a daily basis. But not only that, we have the Bible that we read. Faith comes by hearing it, hearing by the Word of God. Not only that, we, we, we have a prayer life that we intermingle with the, with the Word of God on a daily basis. It's called a daily devotional, a quiet time. Just a time you set aside every day to repent and pray and read your Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If, if you're not in the Word every day, then I promise you're, you're not going to have a lot of faith and you're not going to have a lot of joy. You can go to counseling every day for the next year, but if you're not having a daily devotional... And after a year, you're still going to be depressed. You can go to counseling for a full year, every day, celebrate recovery, AA, NA, you name it. But if you're not having this daily devotional with Jesus Christ in a year from now, you're still going to desire the world more than you desire Jesus. 
It's this daily devotional with Jesus that causes our faith to grow and causes us to become more in love with Jesus as we realize more and more that he loves us. We have repentance and the Bible and prayer. And we read also in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, in our sanctification, we have the church. We have one another. Let us consider how we can encourage one another to love and good deeds and not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day coming. This is why we're commanded to assemble together. I was thinking about this just this morning. There's a song that we sang, um, the, the last song that we sang, How I'm Prone to Wander. Is anybody else prone to wander but me? It's kind of a human thing, isn't it? I, we're all prone to wander. Wander. And I was just, I was just thinking, without the church, without exercising my spiritual gifts, without a community of believers, I shudder to think how week after week after week, how far I would wander from my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why we're commanded to assemble every week and to encourage one another. You see, there's things that, there's things that our deacons do that, that I can't do. I mean, they've got a knack to clean things and fix things, and they are an incredible group of guys. And I've got a spiritual gift, a knack that perhaps they can't do. And Robbie's got a, a gift, a knack that, that we can't do. And Reggie back there on multimedia has a gift and a knack that, 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 that none of the rest of us can do. And we all have spiritual gifts that allow us to not compete with one another, but complement one another. But no matter what our unique gifting is, a common denominator, something that we all have, is that we are all called to encourage one another. We are all called to give each other hugs, to pray for one another, to get into each other's lives, and to spur one another on, to keep seeking Christ with all of our heart. Sanctification is kind of like the Dallas Cowboys. How the, the, the goal, right, is to keep moving down the football field, to keep scoring, to, to keep making first downs. And you keep racking up first down after first down, and then eventually you make a touchdown. And that's the goal of sanctification. It's to move down the field of life, to look and act more like Jesus. Well, now, the Cowboys, this is an incredible team right now, and they have an incredible an, an incredible arsenal, an incredible skill set to move down the field. I mean, they've got, they've, got, um, they, they've got the quarterback, and they've got the running back, and they've got the receivers, and they've got the incredible offensive line, and, 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 and they can move in and out of the skill set very strategically for the purpose of moving down the field. And in the same way, our goal is to move down the field, to look and act more like Jesus until we score a touchdown and that's to lead one more person to Christ. And we have an incredible skill set in moving down the field. Like I said, we've got the Bible and we've got prayer and we've got repentance and we've got church and we've got the fellowship of the believers and we encourage one another and, and we move further and further down the field and then one more person gets saved and then we help them to begin moving down the field of life. Sometimes what happens when we move down the field of life is that, you know, we, we get back there and we think that we're going to pass and, and then sometimes we get sacked. I mean, we just lose 10 yards. And we think we'll make up for it, and we just lose another 10 yards. And sometimes we just punt the ball away. And, I mean, sometimes we stumble, and sometimes we struggle. And be certain 
that when you stumble and you struggle, Satan will kick you when you're down. The accuser, he is cruel and he pounces on us. He looks for windows of weakness to accuse us and condemn us and to keep us down. But there is no condemnation in Christ, none. And if you're feeling accused and kicked, that is not the voice of God saying, I'm so discouraged in you. How could you have done that? I could never use you again. That is not the voice of God because in Christ, our position is that we are saved, past tense, forgiven and perfected. We are the righteousness of God. And so scriptures tell us, a just man falls seven times and seven times rises again. And I think that the single greatest tool in our skill set to move down the field to become more like Christ is the truth that we are saved. The past tense of our salvation. It is done. We are forgiven. We are perfected. We are the righteousness of God. We had filthy garments, but they've been removed from us. And we've been clothed with the very righteousness of God. And so that truth enables us to get back up and pick the skill set back up. Our prayer, our relationship with the Lord, our relationship with the believers. Reaching out to the lost and to keep moving down the field, acting more and more like Jesus. Was that, was that okay, preaching? Is that all right? Well, let's put our hands together and praise Jesus for who we are in Christ. We are the very righteousness of God. That truth, again, is the most important tool in your skill set of moving down the field. And then that brings us into the third tense of our salvation, the future tense. We are glorified. And verse... Um, Verse 35 and on in chapter 10 just implores us to not get too comfortable here. Let's just, let's just look forward to heaven. Let's live for heaven. Let's live for the rewards of heaven. Would you stand with me, please? And I have, I've become face-to-face with, uh, with the reality that I've become face-to-face with the reality that, that, that this is not our home. Um, many times and here, here recently in the last month I've had the privilege of being beside uh, the, the, the bed of, of you know some loved ones who were slipping into eternity um, one, one brother he had Alzheimer's for 10 years and he was really detached from his family the last couple of years good friend of mine uh, Brad Wright's dad and I, I grew up with Brad also and, and um, Alzheimer's for 10 years and really slipping away from his family big time and you know, within, within just a couple of days of him dying and going on to heaven, he in a moment came out of that fog and with a clarity, he looked at his wife and he called her by name and he said, June, mom and dad are telling me to come on home. Is, is that okay with you? She said, yes, go home. It's incredible, isn't it? You know, he lived, you know, 75 years here but he'll live forever there and we we get so attached to this but this is just temporary this is just like a a baby in the womb but 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 real life is when they're delivered and real life begins when we're delivered from this life and we enter into eternity another friend of mine just just recently i've probably never seen somebody more suspended between two worlds and this friend of mine who recently died just a couple of weeks ago they were just so suspended between this life and the next 
and you know, hospice had been in the house, and this person hadn't eaten. When, when, when I started visiting with them, this person hadn't eaten food for 37 days. And uh, yet it was amazing, as, 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 as almost, almost unconscious as they were, their, their vibrant spirit still shone through so beautifully and radiantly, their compassionate spirit. But they were almost there, almost home, literally suspended between two worlds, and they, uh, they, in fact, had a vision of heaven uh, just a couple of days before they passed away. They had a vision of heaven. And then I, I, I went to the bedside, and I was praying with them. I was reading Psalm 23. Never underestimate how much somebody in that condition can hear and understand. So I was reading Psalm chapter 20, 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And when I said, and I will surely live in the house of the Lord forever, it was like a kid at Christmas who just saw a bike, the excitement on their face, and they were like, ah. It was, it was really awesome. They got a glimpse of it. And like Paul, who also got a glimpse of heaven, he was done with this world. He said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To, to go on living in the, in the body is profitable for you, but for me it's far better to be face-to-face with the one who loved me and gave himself for me. <clears throat> so when I was at the bedside of this person, I said, you know, I, I don't hold anything back, and I have faith. And so I said, you know what? Let's just pray. I'm just going to pray that, that God heals you. And I, and I started praying. And I, and I surrender those things to God's will, not my will, your will be done. So I started praying that God had prayed you would heal my friend and raise them up from this sickbed. And they, this, this, this lady, she, she, she you know, clenched her eyes tight and she shook her head no. And I mean, that's not what she wanted. She saw heaven and she wanted to get there. Literally suspended between two worlds. So I continued to talk about heaven and like a child at Christmas. She continued to be so excited about that. And all that to say, let's, let's not get too attached to our little houses and our little cars and our little careers and our, and our clothes, which are just decomposed rags, no matter how expensive they may have been. Let's not get too attached to anything in this world. Let's live for what matters in heaven. And what matters in heaven is souls. It's souls. It's love. Let's love well. Let's love Jesus well. Let's love the church that Jesus died for to establish well. And let's love a lost and dying world well. And let's bring as many people with us to heaven as we possibly can. Yeah, let's put our hands together and praise Jesus. The biggest key to living with success and peace and joy in this life, the biggest key is the truth that you are saved, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are sealed, you are bought with the price, you are adopted, you are his, you are heaven bound by one sacrifice and it's nothing that you do. We're all legalists by nature. We all at heart, in our flesh, want a gospel where we can just climb up some mountain and steal an egg from an eagle's nest or some heroic act. We all want to do something to add to our salvation. We are all legalists. We all want to tithe or give or serve or work or resist or don't or something. But there's only one sacrifice 
that saves us and perfects us and clothes us with the righteousness of God, and that is Christ on the cross? Or do you think that your sacrifice can trump that? Or do you think that you can add to the blood of Christ for your salvation? We can't add to it. All we can do is be grateful for it. And that's the greatest peace that we have in the sanctification process. We praise him for it. And then one day we'll check out and we'll be face to face with Jesus Christ. No soul sleep, no jet lag, no time delay. Lights out here, lights on in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One day we'll be face to face with Jesus. And I, I used to dream that the church would look like this or look like that or this or that. I only have one dream these days. And that's to stand before Jesus and hear him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant, in whom I am well pleased. That's the truth. That's the truth. I had all sorts of preconceived notions of what maybe my life would unfold like. But I only want one thing these days. I only have one ambition. I have one ambition, and that is to stand before Jesus and hear him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant, in whom I am well pleased. I pray you share that ambition. And that the, the, the way that we'll hear Jesus say that is if we leave, live completely surrendered lives right now. So would you bow your heads with me? Perhaps you've been like caught up in this legalistic thing, if that's you, and, and, and you, just, you just want to walk in freedom because you're forgiven and perfected forever, and you want to walk in that freedom and joy. Would you just raise your hand? I would just like to pray for you. Amen. And then in the sanctification process, perhaps you've stumbled, perhaps you've been sacked a few times, and you need to get back up and begin making progress down the field. You don't have to get saved again. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to listen to the accusing lies of Satan. You just get up in the name of Christ. Get up by the blood of Christ and begin walking with Christ. You don't have to wait two weeks until your conscience isn't so bad again or do some goods to outdo the bads. You got sacked. The Apostle John writes, my dear children, you will sin, but we have an advocate. So let's get up and not sin anymore. Let's go. You've been sacked. Okay. All right. Stop accusing yourself. Stop listening to accusations. Stop trying to wait a certain amount of time to do some goods to undo the bads. One sacrifice perfects you, and that's Christ. It's time to get up. A just man falls seven times, and seven times rises again. Let's go. Let's get up. There's a lot of people that need to be saved. There's a lot of work in the ministry that needs to be done. There's a lot of prayers that need to be prayed. You got, some, some, so you, you got to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's time to seek the Lord again. Let's stop licking our bruises. Let's stop, let's stop walking, around with our, walking around with guilty consciences, with hanging our head. Let's, let's get our head up. Let's walk with boldness. Let's live with boldness. Let's pray with boldness. Perhaps you've been sacked and it's time to stand back up. If that's you, just raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you. Amen. Me too. And then let's live for heaven. Let's live a surrendered life so that we hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant, in whom I am well pleased. If that's you, raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you too. Okay. Father, you saw those hands. I pray in Jesus' name, God, that we would live uh, functioning in our identity in Christ. We are saved, bought, redeemed, chosen, forgiven, sealed, adopted. The penalty has been paid for. We are forgiven. We are perfected forever praise you, Lord. We pray that we would walk in that freedom and we would live for heaven. And uh, I, I, let's just enter into worship. Let's just respond to such great a salvation uh, with worshiping with, with all of our hearts.